I'm sitting here in my own house, minding my own business. Where you been? I don't think you can. I've been having a hell of a time. When I'm bad. End of question and answer period. Hey guys, welcome to High Camp, the podcast where I try to watch all 406 movies from an out-of-print gay film guide before I die. I'm your host, Brian Rucker, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Jonathan Bradley Welch. Hi. Hi. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good evening. Good. Thank you so much for coming over. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. On this hot summer's night. It is. This is a this is a summer's eve like like none other. Yeah. I thought I was gonna be able to keep the window open, but then our neighbor's dog started barking and now we're just gonna have to suffer. Yeah, I think Cujo next door ruined everything oh for us. So here we are. That's not on the list, is it? No. There's the I mean, as I'm going along doing this, I realize more and more how specific this man's taste is and how like yes. there's so many just blind spots. Oh yeah. Uh, but once I start something, I do not stop. So I'm going to keep going. <laughs> yeah. You have eight years ahead of you. Yeah. I have a long career ahead of me okay. of doing this podcast. So <laughs> great. it's great. Cause like I don't have much else going on uh-huh. uh, job wise. So this is, yeah, something, something to fill the time and maybe eventually yeah. someone will listen to it. Maybe I, I bet they will. And also I hope that that fortune changes in the next seven years. And Oh God, I hope so months. too. Yes. I hope so too. Yes, uh, it will. I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> we'll I'm, see. I'm getting very into energy. I'm getting very into like, like just feeling things yes, and trying to be, trying to embrace my more empathic side. Oh and wow. So I'm trying to like really put that out there. Do you, do you consider yourself an, an empath? I don't know if I would say an empath, but I have very strong empathic qualities. So I will take on when people are telling me things that are going on in their lives, like oh. I will really take it on and I'll really oh, wow. feel it. That's good. Yeah. That's like a really helpful, I think, trait to have as an adult. I think, I feel like when I was a kid, I was extremely empathic Mm -hmm. and then I might've like built up some sort of wall. And now I feel sometimes like I'm just an asshole who (laughs) cannot think about anything besides his own things going on. But I'm trying to be better about that. I guess I think I I do think that it's not sustainable as a model for living. Well, you could go crazy. Yeah, you absolutely will. And I have a family back East. I'm from the East coast. My family is very, Uh, tied in with each other and they have a lot of stuff going on like there's a lot of illness there's a lot of like there are babies there are things happening so there's always something going on and I'm really like feeling it and I live 2600 miles away from these people but I still feel it yeah and sometimes like the geographical distance is is helpful to like separate yourself a little bit from that but then you start to feel guilty uh I know like I lived you know on the east coast my family's from the west coast and Mm -hmm. uh yeah, going through similar stuff. It's like you, you sort of want to be there, but then at some point you have to be like, okay, I'm going to make some time for this. And then I need to like go about my own life. Absolutely. Physical separation is a very important part of a healthy family life. Yeah. Wow. That was a deep introduction. I'm really, it was, I took out my crystals. (laughs) We charged them in the moonlight. Uh, and here we are, we're ready. Here we are. So (laughs) Usually, yeah, the first thing I ask everyone on this podcast, uh, before we start talking about the main movie, we are going to be talking about 1938's Jezebel, directed by William Wyler, eventually. But Mm -hmm. first, Jonathan, uh, what are you watching? Like camp, non-camp, anything yeah, um, TV movies. I I do a lot of I have a lot of freelance work going on right now. So on top of my like full time job, when I'm at home, I'm sitting at my desk. So I put on Who's the Boss, and oh. I just let that go in the background because there's something really soothing about Tony Danza uh-huh. uh, that that just makes me feel uh, like I can make anything happen. Um, so I've put that on, but I've also like given a conscious eye to Mind Hunter season Ooh. two. I haven't started season two yet. Oh, it's really, really, it's really good. I can't wait. Yeah. I yeah. really loved the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought uh, Jonathan Groff, it was like weird casting, but it it worked. He's so good. He's so it. good. Yeah. I just, I think of Jonathan Groff as like a little, a little dish I'd like to dine on. Like <laughs> I just, I, I have a thing for Jonathan Groff. Yeah. Like Midwestern farmer boy yeah, sort like of. Yeah, like farmer boy. He's really cute, but like he's not this like 
he's not your average twink, you know? Like no, he's, he's a little meat on his bones. He's got a little yeah. meat on his bones. I'm into it. I love like his little the, the his facial expressions. Like I'm just very into it. I'm yeah. ready. Uh, Jonathan Groff, if you're listening, if you're available, I don't know. I don't know your life. I don't know what you're into. You never know. You just never know. You never know when we could, when our eyes could meet. You might as well, yeah, put it out there. I, I am. Again, it's all about the energy. It's <laughs> yeah. all about whatever I'm putting out. So I'm putting this out there. You'll have to get through his mm-hmm. best friend, Leah Michelle. I'm sure she's... I forgot about that. Yeah. And actually, you know, the other day I was thinking about this and I was just thinking about how relieved I am that she is nowhere to be found. Or I mean, is she around? She's on. She I feel like she's on some commercials for something. Is she she and hasn't gone to like Capital One commercials yet. Like booted is, Jennifer Garner out or anything. Oh like yeah, I don't know. I think she would probably kill for a, a Capital One campaign. Oh, she'd love that. She'd love some kind of national campaign that's um, been going on for a few years. And I think she does a lot of like SpawnCon. I think she recently got married oh, to somebody. I don't know the details. Uh, and then this is, I mean, horrible. But like, she's still. They, I think people still ask her about Corey Monteith a lot. So she like oh, every yeah. once in a while you'll just be like, see an art, see an article in Us Weekly that's like, oh, this is the sixth anniversary of Corey Monteith's death. Here's Ugh. a here's an interview with Leah Michelle. Yeah, because like, we love misery. You know, like we just love stewing on misery. Yeah, right? and like it obviously was a traumatic thing for for her, but uh, it is weird to always be coupled with this this guy <laughs> yeah absolutely so she's probably living with that in her rear view and so i i feel bad but i'm also relieved that i don't see her that often that's good I well you would have to if you and jonathan groff started hooking up i would but you know sometimes in relationships you pull people away from their friends that's and I would true make a conscious <laughs> effort to be that kind of monster that would be tough but you could do it i bet i could do it i could do it jonathan if you're listening to jonathan's that's what I've always oh, dreamed. Oh God! Of. Yeah, that is. Have you ever dated a Jonathan? I have. I've dated a John, uh-huh. uh, which was weird enough for me. Yeah. yeah, I just I don't think I could do it. Uh, I dated a Brian in college, and it's. Yeah. I mean, as as a Jonathan or as a Brian, I think it just happens because there's there's such common names. Yeah. Um, yeah. It wasn't you know after it's not that weird. It's just uh, it's like a little anecdote for people meeting you mm-hmm. that's like, Oh my God, that's so cute. And then immediately it's like, oh, yeah, there's really no story here. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it, was he a Brian with a Y or an I, uh, with a Y. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. you really, you really, yeah. For it. yeah. Uh, yeah, now I'm like, oh, is it? No, it was with a Y. It was with yeah, a Y. Yeah. Was a long time ago. So he was significant yeah. clearly. Yeah. Oh, very, very, very. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, he was, so back to Mindhunter, yeah, Jonathan yeah, yeah. Groff oh, was, yeah. uh, yeah, no, that, that casting ended up working out really well because he does, uh, he, he does just such a cold, uh, feeling so well. Like he just kind of encapsulates himself in that, in that kind of chilly behavior. Yeah. And it goes against his, his looks because yeah. they are so sort of like warm, all American and then playing this, I mean, I don't know. I don't think he's like a psychopath really. Well, I haven't seen the second season, but yeah. uh, he obviously has some traits that like keep him uh, interested in these other psychopaths because mm-hmm. he sees some of himself in that. Oh yeah. He's um, totally interested in them and understands them. He knows yeah. their personality. He feels certain things. I, they're, I'm only, I'm trying to do like one episode a sitting. I'm yeah, not. That's a show you cannot binge you really. You really can't. And people who do, I'm very concerned for them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I can't really binge almost anything. Like, yeah. everything is like too much for me to watch more than uh, one or two episodes. I did watch three episodes of Euphoria in one day okay. a couple weeks ago, um, and that was definitely my limit. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you been watching Years and Years on HBO? No, I've heard from so many people that I should. It's fucking rough i don't think i can do it then i don't know why i am watching it it's sure it 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 literally makes me so miserable uh i've watched four out of the six episodes and they keep Mm -hmm. getting and it's it's like this speculative fiction about the near future but it's close enough to our real situation that there's no element of like escapism or science fiction in it it's just depressing i don't like that and i don't want to watch it so yeah okay yeah i don't i don't think i can recommend it to anyone and yet i mean i only have two episodes left so i guess i'll finish it you just you have to finish it i guess when you get that close i'm i'm all about escaping into something in the past so obviously like mindhunter is very heavy but it's from the 70s i've been watching glow and from the 80s so you know, so I'm feeling that. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to just escape into the past because I think when the present is so 
like depressing yeah. that and the future is so dire <laughs> you're like yeah. well there's one thing left and that's the past that is exactly why i do my podcast oh I my god yeah classic television yeah plug your podcast for oh, people yeah, that don't it's know. a special presentation and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts um and you can follow us at a special presentation pod if you want to and learn more but, but we talk about old television shows we talk about things that are not on anymore and airing new episodes so we have no choice but to go into the past and it's a wonderful place to be. Yeah. Like it's really great to have that assignment every week where I have to get into something that's, that's old. Um, it's just, it feels good. And it's definitely a way so that we're not talking about all of the same heavy shit all the time. Totally. Yeah. I found like both. Yeah. As an escape. And then I just like, I love, like you love television. I love television too. And I love these old movies and I, I like having sort of at least some record of, of like watching this stuff and discussing it. If, if people, you know, are able to find it and like take some, some pleasure in it. It's really nice to think about. Absolutely. Like let's actually enjoy something for a change. I mean, there's, there are a lot of reasons to be miserable, so we may as well go back and uh, see what we can, we can dig up. Yeah. And hopefully uh, things will get better eventually. They will guys. They will. I hope so. Yes. (laughs) Um, all right. Well, let's get into our main topic today. Yeah. Uh, so you, yeah, I asked you to like pick a few of these movies and yeah. then I, I, you, you picked, um, uh, I think you, let's see, you said all about Eve and, mm-hmm. uh, mommy dearest, a couple big ones that I'm like, Oh, I want to, I want to like save those. So I'm going to do one totally, yeah. that I had never seen before. Um, and it is 1938's Jezebel directed by William Wyler and starring Betty Davis. Yes. So this was actually my first exposure to Betty. Davis. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, the first time I ever saw it, my aunt who I spent summers with, with her and with my cousins, uh, up in Vermont, she worked at a video store and I was maybe like nine or 10 years old. And we went into the video store and she's like, pick whatever you want. Just like pick a movie. Everybody gets to pick a movie. So I picked Betty Davis's Jezebel. And you came out the next day. <laughs> and it was like, this is a very clear, like, I was just like, guys, listen, love, love sports. I love boobs. Um, I'm going to watch this Betty Davis movie by myself. What was it? Because you had never seen a Betty Davis movie before. No, what never. was it about the light? Was it, it was like a VHS copy? Yeah, it was VHS. And I remember it specifically. I remember the case. It was from, I think it was from like the Betty Davis collection. So back when they would do like collections of, of specific actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was very into Charlie Chaplin when I was a kid. And there were no Charlie Chaplin movies available on the shelves. So I went right to black and white and just looked for something, something classic. Uh, and I was also like really into history. Weird kid, very sure. weird kid, but very nerdy. And and I loved history. And I was like heavy into Ken Burns, the Civil War at like the age of nine. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, so you watched it before you had to in school? Oh, I babysat myself. <laughs> like I could just I didn't I didn't babysit myself, but I could have uh-huh. with just like watching watching a 12 hour documentary. Do you have siblings? I do. Oh yeah. I do. Yeah, but I'm kind of set apart okay. in my family, so I I was pretty much raised like alone mm-hmm. uh, until my younger brother came along 6 years later, but oh, wow. he was a very different kid. So um so yeah, so we I I would watch like all of these things and get like really deep into it. So seeing this civil war or pre-civil war antebellum era like period piece i was like yeah great i've never i've never actually seen a betty davis movie i know she exists i know about her yeah um let's let's pick it and of course my aunt was like okay (laughs) sure like everybody's picking like teenage mutant ninja turtles and i'm just like betty davis jezebel let's go and what did you think when you saw it when you were that age did you you respond to it stuck to it yeah like I was glued to it I loved that movie I remember where I was when I was watching it I was sitting in my aunt and uncle's living room in their big pink recliner (laughs) and I just I just watched it while everybody played outside I was like I just really need to get through this movie guys sorry yeah come out later um because I I like literally just watched it for the first time two hours ago and I I mean and I love Betty Davis I I'm trying to think probably all about Eve is the first Betty Davis I saw. Mm-hmm. Or Which is a great choice. Either that or it could have been one of her like very late sort of, uh, she had like Watcher, actually Watcher in the Woods has to be the first time I ever watched a Betty Davis movie. Yeah. Because that came out when I was, like I saw that as a little, little kid. Sure. Um, 
but and I've you know since then seen I think a bunch a bunch of her movies like uh, you know Dark Victory, now Voyager, The Letter, oh yeah, all that stuff. But for some reason, this movie um, I never saw. I think because I I always felt it was in the shadow of Gone with the Wind because so it much was. of the history um, is like en- entwined with the production of Gone with the Wind, and basically Betty Davis was was given this role as a consolation prize for not getting cast as yeah. Scarlett O'Hara. That's exactly what I have in my notes. Okay, yeah, 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 that this was a consolation prize for her. Um, they the attitude about Betty Davis, like in early Hollywood, especially in her earlier career in the '30s, was that she just wasn't like really leading lady material. Like she was just kind of. She had kind of a little bit of a wonkier face, um, and she had like a just a brash way about her. So people weren't really sure how to respond to her. She talked about that in interviews yeah. in her later life, like where she was like, I wasn't that pretty. I beg to differ. I think she was beautiful. I do not think she's ever been more beautiful than in this movie. She yes. is so gorgeous she's in Jezebel. stunning. She is like a striking Southern belle, and there's this like very mischievous innocence about her mm-hmm. in, in the movie. Um, but she's also apparently like kind of evil. So we get to that. Uh, but she, yeah, no, she was... She was not someone that you would go to. She was not a go-to in Hollywood. She had to fight yeah, quite a bit. She was like with Warner Brothers for the whole early part of her career. And she was like one of the leading ladies at Warner Brothers. But they, I think they specialized in more like genre stuff, like yeah. grittier stuff than, than MGM or Paramount or something. So she was able to get these uh like meteor parts without being the typical romantic lead yeah um which is so interesting and she did some great stuff with them too yeah 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 absolutely but yeah this is the i mean she she is like i i came away from this movie uh honestly being i mean i loved it but it it was very um very dark it was totally different than i expected it was like and Gone, gone with the wind is something that uh, is obviously a very complicated movie. Um, its depictions of the South and of race are, you know, there's definitely better people than us to pick that apart. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, two white guys sitting in, exactly. uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles, in like a quiet Los Angeles neighborhood. Uh, however, I will say that there was like a really strong undercurrent of race in this movie that, you don't see as on the face as you do in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I felt so. Um, this movie starts out as one thing, and I think uh, part part way in totally changes the tone in a, in a in a very surprising way to me. So, um, at the beginning of the movie, Betty Davis is this is this like Southern belle, sort of mischievous girl. And the biggest problem that she has is she wants to wear this bright red dress at this ball. Um, and all the other unmarried women are, you're supposed to wear white. Right. And thank God they talk about the dress being red so many times. Oh because well, this, this is a black, is a and, white black and white movie, yeah. so you can't tell. Um, but they're like, Julia, red dress. Her name's Julie. Uh, and they're like, Julia, red dress, Miss Julie? You can't. You can't possibly. And that's literally like the first half hour of the movie is oh, yeah. just about this. And I, I was like, oh, God. Is this what this movie is going to be? Is it going to be even like more flippant about the antebellum South and about race than Gone with the Wind? Is it just going to be about this stupid white woman and her stupid problems? And then uh, the so Henry Fonda plays her her beau, who basically after this ball is like embarrassed by her or whatever and breaks up with her. And then it's like one year later, Mm -hmm. he comes back with um, a wife from New York. Yeah, he went up north. And I think this the very pivotal you see Henry Fonda change. Yeah. In and and just kind of how he approaches her, uh, his character press. He is he's very tolerant. He always comes back to her. Like it seems like they have this very rocky, tumultuous relationship. Yeah, they mentioned they've been like engaged more than once yeah. and breaking out. But it, and it's very much like uh, Scarlett O'Hara and um, the Tarleton Twins at the yeah. beginning of that movie. Like just this sort of basic Southern Belle shit. Yes, where she's just like so privileged and she's like, "Oh, I'll get him back. It's fine. He's yeah, gonna yeah, come yeah. back. Don't you worry." And she lives with her aunt. Yeah, Aunt Belle. Aunt Belle, played by. Um, Faye Bainter, who did you know that? So Betty Davis won her second Best Actress Oscar for From Jezebel. Yeah, Faye Bainter won Best Supporting Actress. Oh, for, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I mean she was good in it. Yeah, but 
uh, I was like, oh, that must have been sort of a because I guess she was also nominated for Best Actress this same year for another part. Oh, wow. And she must have been one of those like older character actors that they're like, oh, we're going to reward her for her career. Well, she also, I, I do think that she did really well in She's this great. role. And, and, and in terms of the characters changing, this is, this is really a movie where characters do have revelations about themselves and about one another. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, Aunt Belle really does change how she feels. And there are so many moments where she realizes that she's like burdened with this niece who's maybe a little bit too much like her. Oh yeah. I mean, I never thought about that, that Aunt Belle saw herself in, in Julie. I saw her looking like sort of, um, spoiling Julie at the beginning and, uh, just being tolerant of her sort of flippantness. Mm-hmm. And then all of the characters really, but especially her and, and press as well, as the movie goes on there, they see Julie for what she is. Who's truly a horrible person. She is. She's very spoiled, very self-centered. Um, and she likes to play around. Now I have kind of mixed emotions about it because yes, she does like to play around with how other people feel and 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 she manipulates their emotions yeah and she sees nothing outside of herself nothing at all but she's also kind of i I look at her as kind of a little bit of a ball buster in a way Mm -hmm. and there there's definitely that tone of like listen you can't change the way we do things and she wants to change the way that people do things but maybe not with the right motives yeah i mean she does she is like out of place in the sense of being this this woman who uh, doesn't fit in with the rest rest of sort of the passive wives in this takes place in New Orleans um, mm-hmm. before the Civil War. I, I was all this is another thing I was just surprised they never they never get to the Civil War. It ends they never it ends do. in the eighteen fifties. Yeah, I, I love when she's like, "This is eighteen When she's saying something about the dress, she's getting fitted for the dress, and she's like, "This is eighteen fifty two. We could do whatever we want <laughs> yeah. in eighteen fifty two. Like, yeah, it's like, like the end of an empire. Uh, yeah, uh, it and. Yeah, and so she she's like this, I guess, in some respects, like proto-feminist. I mean, mm-hmm. also it's Betty Davis playing her, so she's always going to yes. be this this strong, brassy uh, woman. And yet, all of all of her quote unquote feminism, everything is in the service of her own selfish motives, right? Yeah. Um, maybe until I mean, we'll get there, but until the last moment, perhaps. Oh yeah, which is that about face again with every character kind of like yeah. changing how they feel, like that you see that then. But what you see Henry Fonda or Press just kind of like dealing with her. And yeah. And she she wants more attention from him. And then she she takes they go to the ball and she's wearing this red dress. And he's embarrassed by it, but then he quickly just says, All right, well let's go. And then when they go, they're dancing. And he's kind of sociopathic in a way. <laughs> like he's just, she is having an emotional break because she realizes that she should not have done this and that she's made him look like a fool. She clears the dance floor completely. Yeah. And you see, you see this scene of all of the other like debutantes at the ball, all in white. And then it's just Julie and press on the dance floor by themselves. And, yeah, what should be like a triumphant moment? Because it's like, well, what were you expecting? You were expecting to make a scene. Yeah. So like she did make a scene. Yeah. But then I don't know what exactly she's thinking at that point and what he's thinking, but it, it goes wrong. And she they both regret, I guess, what she did. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's she's crying on the dance floor and she says, I want to leave. I want to go home. And he just looks right through her. Mm. and He won't stop dancing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that stuck with me in a big way. Why do you think he, like, is he just trying to prove a point to her? I think so. I think if he, I think he felt somewhat humiliated, so he really wanted to drag that out. Yeah. And I think that that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for him. He yeah, didn't yeah, take yeah. it anymore. I mean, they had split up. They had gotten back together. She was always questioning whether, whether he had time for her. He was a banker, mm-hmm. so he was kind of a hot shot. And, um, and I think that finally he had just had enough. He had, he had his breaking point. Uh, yeah. And so they, they break up. He, he goes to the North. Um, and then the movie picks up a year later and, um, she's totally changed in this year. She, she doesn't leave the house. Um, Aunt Belle is 
is worried for her. She, she, they, they talk about how she's constantly um, cleaning the house over and over again. And it, it made me think that obviously this wasn't diagnosed at the time, but it's like, Oh, she has like OCD or maybe even like bipolar. Yes. Like she had this manic episode and now mm -hmm. she's in this depressive state um, and she's made herself sort of a recluse. Oh, she goes to extremes. I mean, you, you see, her change on a dime, like just her mood and how she approaches everything. And she realized, and he, he's coming back, press is coming back and it's announced. So she packs everybody up, I think. And they go to like their favorite plantation. Yeah. I guess it's like their <laughs> summer plantation. Cause sure. they live in new Orleans and then they go to, it's called Hyperion. I Hyperion. Think? Yeah. And that's like in the country in another mm -hmm. parish, uh, and I think it's similar. I mean, literally the only thing I know about this lifestyle is from watching Gone with the Wind. And yeah. like, they have multiple houses. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got, a, the, you got a plantation, you've got a city house, you have all. So she has her own place. Yeah. That becomes important later on. Um, and then they all go to Hyperion and they welcome Press. Who comes back with a woman named Amy. Yes. Played by Margaret Lindsay, who yeah. is... So at first you're like, oh, this is the most fucking punchable, simpering <laughs> lady, like brunette. So, I mean, she's pretty, but like she's sort of mousy. And you're like, oh, this bitch. That that was my first this opinion bitch, of her. Yeah. And then soon, at least for me, you're like, oh, no, she's the only one who sees this disgusting society for what Absolutely. it is. Absolutely. She's a northerner. So, of course, they chastise her immediately and they think that she's just so foolish. Um, there are a couple other characters who become important here. You have, um, oh my God, what's his name? We have uh, Buck Cantrell. Buck Cantrell. <laughs> what a name. Buck Cantrell. And Buck Cantrell, like, he's he's hot. I wrote Buck hot in so, parentheses yeah. because that's kind of how I felt about him. He's like a truly vile person. Oh, he would have a MAGA hat on oh today. Oh my God. They all, that, I mean, that's another thing, This just watching this movie yeah. today. I'm like, oh my God, this is it's all so happening current. again. Yes, Ugh. it is. And they and they just the way that they look at um, the way that they look at Northerners and the way that they talk about them, it's like this us versus them mentality. Yeah, I actually drove by to take a quick tangent, if I may, uh, today on my way home from work. There was a car next to me, and uh, and he didn't have a bumper sticker, but he had like he wrote it out on like Microsoft Word um, that said American question mark or Democrat. On like like on a white sheet of paper that he like taped to his that car. He taped to his rear window. I mean, he's our days, Buck Cantrell. He's but he is kind of Buck Cantrell. He looked a little bit like Guy Fieri, but without Ooh. the the tips. Um, and he flipped me off as for doing what for having an Elizabeth Warren sticker. Oh, <laughs> on my car. so he could see that and he flipped me off. Um, what does he fucking think living in Los Angeles? Yeah. What do you think? And also like you feel the way you feel so much that you go and, and print out a word document yeah. like in trebuchet 48 so that like people can kind of read it, but not really. He wouldn't even spring for a MAGA bumper sticker. No, he just stuck that in the back of his car. But it was, it reminded me of very like, like us versus them. Like you can't be an American. If no. You're this. And it's like, no, you, you can be like, everybody can be human. And you see this like in, in the way press acts when he comes back, like he seems yeah. very enlightened about just relations with, with, you know, the people who are kind of in the employ of. Yeah. Of well, yeah. I mean, they have a bunch of slaves like, yeah. and this is another movie. And again, there are no, no movies that I'm aware of in classic Hollywood in this, uh, era that that centered um, black lives or mm -hmm. had um, like was from a black point of view, and this is no different. Uh, but I found, and again, like the 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 two sort of main black characters in this movie are um, two slaves. Uh, we have Lou Caton, I think, who played Cato. Uncle um, Cato. Uncle yeah. Cato. And then yeah. Teresa Harris, who was a huge um, Warner Brothers oh, actor. Oh, yes, she was. Uh, who played Zeddy. And mm -hmm. she, she was also in um, in Babyface with Barbara Stanwyck, who I, uh, which I like discussed on the podcast a mm -hmm. couple a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but they had, I mean, like most movies 
and still a lot of movies today, they were mostly just used as, as a prop. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately kind of playing the same character over um, and over. But I, I, I did find that this movie was ex- extremely hard on, on the South in a good way. Yeah. Um, and you sort of end up, I mean, maybe, I don't know, like I, you can only see movies from your own point of view, but the, the scene and we're jumping ahead again, but the, the scene where Betty Davis is, is singing the song with a group of, I don't know, 20 to 30 slaves yeah. and, and everything's going wrong. And she's trying to like get the party started basically. And you see all these black faces around her and her just sort of grasping onto stuff. It was, it's like devastating to watch that. Oh, it is. There's, a, there's definitely this foreboding sense of what's coming because they also talk about, and this is a key element of the movie, the yellow fever yeah. is creeping up. And that's one thing that they talk about uh, when they flash forward a year and you see Buck and uh, is it cousin Ted or is he his brother? Is he, um, he is um, Ted is, is Press's brother. Press's brother. I don't know why I thought he was his cousin. It, I, I think, yeah, it only yeah. mentions it once or twice. So, so yeah, Buck is played by George Brent, who was, um, who was Betty Davis's like leading man in a lot of her movies. Mm-hmm. He was sort of like the, the stock Warner brothers, just like boring leading man guy. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And he's fine. Like he does his job. He's sort yeah. of cute. Uh, he was also in Babyface. Um, he's very, he, I think he's very handsome. I don't know what it is. Yeah, this character like, was so like abhorrent to me. I couldn't Yeah, he see. was off putting, um, but like when he opened his mouth, it was like, Ooh, no, don't yeah. do that. He don't was great talk. though. He, he like, yeah, cause he's usually just sort of, you know, the boring leading guy as, as like right. a villain. He was, he was really good. Yeah. And then, uh, I just looked this up. Ted is played by Richard Cromwell, who his, the little trivia I saw on IMDb, he was briefly married to, guess who? Oh God, who? Angela Lansbury. What? Isn't that crazy? No way. So like he was older than her and I think yeah. she, like this was, this was in the four, like the 40s. So it was after up. he, cause he was sort of like a hot, like young, whatever the male version of an ingenue is in the thirties. And then when his career was sort of on its downswing, Angela Lansbury had just come from London and was like the new, she was just in gaslight and she was Mm -hmm. like the the new sort of big thing. And he hitched his wagon to her. They were briefly married for less than a year. Then they got, uh, their marriage got annulled because he was like totally gay. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Like that's one thing that, that I noticed is like fake cousin Ted, here he comes or fake brother Ted. Uh, he was very pretty. Um, and, and it doesn't surprise me that Angela, that Jessica Fletcher could not handle (laughs) that for very long. Oh, I want to see that movie. Oh my God. But he, he did not live very long either. Yeah. He had like liver cancer. I mean, they all died. All these people. God, all of these, it was because of the antebellum South. They were down there. They were down there with the yellow fever. The yellow fever came back and it took them all. Um, Uh, yeah, no, but the, but yeah, he was to me this very tender character, and he yeah, he looks up. up. He looks up to uh, his older brother yes. Henry Fonda, and when press comes back with with Amy and sort of and you see Henry Fonda look at everyone in a different way. Yeah, and he's not he's not overly because I, I mean I, I think that's the thing that that this is all playing out nowadays that people think. Um, that, you know, the quote unquote coastal elite is looking down upon them. And that's obviously the way that these, these people felt about, about press and Amy when, right. when he came back from New York. Right. Uh, he has a highfalutin bride. Yeah. Uh, of course they're welcoming to her. They're very cordial. Sure. Um, but they say a lot of nasty things about her behind her back. Yeah. No more so than, than, than Julie. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally like can't even hide her her disdain oh god yeah but i but i did notice that as soon as she found out that press was married and she goes through like a moment of devastation and then buck walks into the room and she's like oh hi and she just turns her eyes to him and now all of a sudden that's the man that he, he's like an admirer of hers but yeah she, she's going to hitch her wagon to to buck and it seems like they they had sort of played this game before i yeah. feel like buck is a little older and he, I guess, I don't know why he's a bachelor or like why he's been on the market for so mm-hmm. long, but he is. And so now that that press is taken, she's setting her sights on him and basically just to, to make him jealous. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That not, not, nothing deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, 
uh, well, they don't even because I thought there was going to be some love triangle thing like with with um, you know with Leslie Howard and Clark Cable in Gone with the Wind, and they they skip all past that. There is like no romance Pretty in this much. movie at all. Right? Yeah, the, she does have a talk with press. Like they go out under under a weeping willow, yeah. and they sit there, and she's just like, "Why? Why did you choose her? You know that." You, you know that we have this connection in so many words. Like, you know, why why would you do this? Um, and they don't really, like, get a lot of resolution there. No, there's no there's no time that press, I, that I, I felt that press ever thought about, oh, I'm going to leave my wife for, for Julie. Oh, no, never. There's, it's all in her mind. Yes. And, and you can tell that she's trying to, like, kind of plot and scheme that a little bit. Like she's trying to plan that out, but it's not really coming to fruition and he's not really looking at her. He no. won't even make eye contact with her. Yeah, he is like totally moved on. Oh, yeah. And you don't even really I mean, do they even explain why they're visit they're just they're visiting to see his hometown, I guess? I think so, but um he has business because he's down at high Hy- is it Hyperion? Hyperion, yeah. Hyperion, so. okay. Um I couldn't remember if it was like Halcyon or Hyperion. Oh, maybe it is Halcyon. Is it Halcyon? I'm thinking I it's one of the two. It's something like yeah. that that H plantation, yeah, yeah. you know. They're at the plantation. And somebody comes for press and they they say you have to come because you're not business partner but somebody in the bank who's higher up than him um wants to talk to him because he's dying of yellow fever. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile this this whole ye- yellow fever uh like this thing, outbreak outbreak that's yeah. the word I'm looking for. yes um the one part of the movie that was like this is a little crazy is when they just kept like showing the um the text i think they just call it yellow yellow jack they just said yellow jack yes. yellow jack yellow jack and you're yeah. like what the fuck is going on what is yellow jack is this kind of whiskey like what's happening well, i think that's just like the, the but that's the, what they called the it. slang yeah the slang yeah. word for yellow fever yeah um, so people in the city in New Orleans are all dying of yellow fever, yeah. and they they make a point. They're like, I think it's um, Aunt Belle or some, one of the characters is like, oh, even even the gentle folks mm-hmm. are dying. So it's like, yeah. oh yeah, your 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 whiteness and your wealth cannot protect you from this disease, and oh, they yeah. do they cannot handle that. Oh, it's a very AIDS crisis when you think about it. It's mm. like, well, they're dying, so we don't care. Oh, wait, we can die too? Oh, we should probably care about that. Exactly, but yeah. It's, it's very much that kind of vibe. Um, and then there's a scene where like somebody runs onto the lawn of the plantation and then they get shot, <sighs> which is... I was like, what is happening? Like, I forgot about that. Scene. Yeah, you, you see yeah. this guy come from sort of the camera's perspective... Uh, and and then immediately you see him get shot and you don't know what's going on. But then it's some dude that I guess because they, they've quarantined New Orleans and they don't they're not letting people that have been exposed to the yellow fever leave um, and go to uh, the other parishes like where uh, the, the plantation is. And so if you do, I guess you can people can just fucking shoot they you. They can shoot you. Yeah. And listen, there's nothing more frightening to me than somebody running onto a lawn who you don't know. Like that, that has always frightened me. If I see it in any movie, television show, I just get petrified by that behavior for whatever reason. Yeah, because well, you're coming uh, like into your space and you don't, you can't protect yourself. Absolutely. Somebody's charging after you or charging after, you know, onto your lawn. Um, That is scary. And everyone's so nonchalant about the guy that shot there. He was just like, oh, can I leave the body? He literally is like, can I leave the body here for a second? Because I need to like get a wagon or whatever. And they're like, like, yeah, that's fine. But they, they were like, yeah, we have instructions to shoot anybody who tries to run the line. It's so, it's so crazy. What? Yeah. Uh, like almost like they're hunting deer wild. Yeah. So, so then you, you sort of like this, this outbreak has, is sort of far off. And then, uh, press has to go back into town to do his, whatever banking job. Right. Um, and then of course he gets exposed to yellow fever. Yep. And he has like a whole scene where he is talking and he's sweating and like, and then collapses in a bar and the man who I can't remember if he's like somebody who works at the bank or if he was the doctor. Yeah. There's Dr. Livingstone. I think it might be him. And then there's also a character named um, Theopolis who's always around. Who's like another older dude. Who's just one of these weird characters. And I'll be honest, I can't tell the difference between them. So like they, they just kind of (laughs) like meld together. But one of these old guys, uh, when press just collapses at a bar, all these people just kind of like scatter to the 
to the outskirts and he yells like, won't you, won't somebody help me? You drunken flaggards. <laughs> so I was like, you got to pause that for a second and write this down. Oh, that's drunken a great line. Flaggards. Flaggards. Yeah. Oh wait. And do we skip the duel? Is that, has that happened yet or no? That has, that ha- happened. let's go back. Yeah, so let's go back to, to the, go back to that. That's a yeah, big part. Of that's the movie. huge. Yeah. So why, wait, why now I'm forgetting. Why mm-hmm. does Buck, why does Ted challenge Buck to a duel? So Ted's the brother. Yeah. Ted's the brother. So, so at this point, Press goes back to the city and this whole blow up happens where, where he leaves. Everybody's treating Amy terribly. She doesn't under, she doesn't understand the Southerners and she, she, they keep talking about two countries like, and it's, and that couldn't be more real. Like, yeah, it was, I mean, it must, that must've been the way that they talked. It reminded me, I mean, without, well, the racial implications are obviously different, but it reminded me of Get Out. That right. This, Amy is like this outsider character who is in this this claustrophobic, weird space. Oh, yeah. And she at one point yells, um, are you all savages, you Southerners? Like, she just screams it at the top of her lungs. That's like, amazing. Yes. And, like, no one really responds to her. They're just like, Ugh. They're like, well, I'm like, yeah, we kind of are. Um, but she, the, she's being, like, totally disrespected. And Ted who looks up to his brother totally understands and sees this. Yeah. Sees how it's happening. And Buck is just a, an asshole piece of shit. He's a complete racist and, and totally insulting, but he's also a really good duelist. So he's really good with a gun. Um, yeah, it was established at the beginning of the movie. He like had a duel with some French dude at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie and like possibly killed him. He claims he yeah. didn't kill him, but you never really know. Yeah. And it was like, well, Buck's the best here at, yeah. at the duel. Um, so I think Julie antagonizes the That's situation. Right. She gets it so that she's pitting these two sides against each other because she's of course dejected because nobody's paying attention to her. And now press has this new wife and, uh, and she's seemingly lovely and cultured and, and a different kind of educated as she says. Yeah. And she won't take educated. the bait when Julie antagonizes her. She's like, exactly. Yeah. So Julie kind of heightens her, her monstrous attitude and gets, uh, she wants to get press and buck to duel. But press is gone. So Ted duels in press's honor. That's right. Yeah. And so they they go to it and Ted is a much smaller man than Buck. So you're just kind of like, oh, man. Yeah. Less experienced, younger. You see him physically like uh, visibly shaking. Mm -hmm. And and Buck is so cocky. And then you see sort of uh, a shot like the in the distance. You just see the two the two guys and, and bullets fly. And then you don't really see what happens next. Right. Until um the next morning, everyone is like huddled in the living room, just yeah. worried sick for like on Ted's behalf. Cause they think they think he, Ted's a goner. And then you see, you see Julie come in with, um, uh, with, with what's her face. With, yeah. With, uh, yeah. With her, with Zeddy, with Zeddy. And, uh, and this is when Amy screams. <laughs> Oh, right. She's yeah, yeah, yeah. just like, what are y'all savages? Um, Cause Julie is just pretending that nothing is wrong. That, and she's, yeah. she's like, Oh, it's a beautiful morning. I just like wanted to yeah. like pick flowers and blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like, what the fuck? One, like, like this girl, yeah. somebody's dead. Someone we know. And she, but she also like kind of says, I'm really envious that men get to do this, yeah. that, that men get to fight it out and stand for what they believe in. We can't do that. Yeah, we and she can't, looks we can't straight, at Amy. straight at Amy. And she's like, women can't hash those differences out that way like i would shoot you if i could oh my god uh and then the door opens and you don't see ted but you see someone in the mirror and you can't exactly tell if it's ted until amy screams ted ted yeah and so of course that means that buck has died buck has ted died. has killed the greatest dueler in new orleans who also is someone who he looked up to ted and buck were close ted learned from buck Buck was his dear friend. They appear together in the beginning of the movie. They appear together after that one year flash That's forward. Right. They are they are kind of a duo. And he just walks over with tears in his eyes, coldly looks at Julie, and he just says, Buck's dead. Yeah. And it's like basically your fault. Yeah. Like it's and, all and because of you. Everyone knows it. Yes. Even uh, though like I, I shot I shot him. But like it's still your fault, Julie. Yeah, because like the it, it the weird quote unquote like chivalry of southern duels is such that no 
man, I guess, can turn it down if, if they've been offended. I mean, it kind of flash forward to where we are today when people are like, are like, well, it's not the, it's not the person or it's not the gun's fault or something. It's yeah. the person. It's kind of like a similar mentality where it's like, I am not in possession of what I'm doing. I have to like respond to this, this call to yeah. action. Yeah. Like, uh, and yeah. Yeah. A good guy with a gun is going to beat a bad guy. That, that. Yeah, mentality. absolutely. It's a, it's a similar mentality, but it's, it's the roles are kind of swapped around because mm-hmm. you are more blaming. I guess you're blaming the gun in this situation, but you're like, well, I have to do it. Yeah. Have to do it. Here we go. Um, so that's kind of, that's where we are in Buck's dead. Yeah. Buck's dead, uh, presses in new Orleans. And then, um, yeah. And then he gets like, the yellow fever. Yes. The yellow fever. He passes out drunken flaggards and he's taken to, uh, to Julie's house in new Orleans because there was no, no hospital could take him. Yes. Well, it's, and all of, all of the people that have been exposed to yellow fever or are sick with yellow fever are basically, um, banished to some Island yeah. to die. Yep. Um, but because of press's privilege, um and his wealth he was able like they were able to basically take him back and go against sort of the the laws of the land um one of uh is this one of one of the slaves has has taken him back or he's a yeah he was taken back and there's like a a, a slave woman who is kind of tending to him and she yeah. has like a cloth over her mouth um but they're keeping him in julie's house and they're kind of quarantining him there but the doctor reports him yeah because now everyone has been exposed this guy has uh i mean it's not his fault but he's he's exposed and everyone is sort of flouting like the 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 quarantine and the doctor's like no your whole fucking family like broke the law Mm -hmm. your wealth can't protect you yep we have to take you to the leper's island which is what they call it yeah uh that they're like taking him away I don't know, like, can you survive yellow fever? I don't think so. I I think at this point it's like, it's a death sentence. It's pretty much a death sentence. The only thing you can hope for is not exposing more people to it. Right. Um, And so, so then it's a little like fishy. Like you don't really understand what's going on, but basically Amy says immediately his, Amy's wife, um, like, I'm going to go with him. Yes. And then immediately Julie comes in. And she's like, because she's been there. Julie went to her house and she decided to start taking care of him. And yeah. she was like, like wetting the compress and like putting it on his head and just like. Trying. Yeah, the first selfless act of her life, perhaps. Yep. And she just like has stayed by his side. And then Amy comes in and she's like, I have to go with him. And they have this whole confrontation on the stairs where where finally uh, Julie's just like, no, you're, you're not strong enough to do this. Like I can do it. And she's not doing it in really a condescending way. She's saying in, in kind of like a, like a, you, you can't do this. I'm going to spare your life. Yeah. Like I know, I know the culture. I know how to like, how to, um, not survive. Cause I don't think anyone is expecting to survive, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. but, but to like, um, to get, to get shit done in a way yeah. that because I'm from here, you can't possibly hope to, to understand how to do this. Yeah. She does say we'll live, he'll live and I will get him better. But yeah. But you I will don't both die. If you go, you will surely both die. Yeah. And, but I don't think, well, Julie, I don't even think Julie believes that. Yeah. And, and like, I don't, yeah, I don't know what her exact, like if she really is, repenting for her past behavior and is Mm -hmm. like, at least I can, I can do this. Um, I've ruined everyone's lives around me. I can at least sacrifice myself. And to Amy's credit, she is like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's She's like, you know what? I've been married to this dude for a year at most. Yeah. I could go back to New York. I probably wasn't exposed. I'm not going to get sick. I can start my life again. Yeah. You're a fucking horrible person. Your whole society is You're all terrible. fucked up. You all should just die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, go for it. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm going to have a hearty second marriage <laughs> and I'm just going to go back up to New York where things are like somewhat normal. Yeah. But yeah. Um, there is, there is also a scene where aunt bell after like, 
everything happens. The duel happens, and then uh, Julie's just sitting there, or standing there, and Aunt Belle's sitting in the parlor alone with her, and she just said, and that's when she calls her Jezebel. And she's yes. just like, who did evil in the sight of God? <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's where we're getting that. Yeah, like, because Julie was at, was is basically asking, like, like, why are you looking at me that way? Or like, what are you thinking? And I think she expects Aunt Belle to like reassure her of mm-hmm. like, oh, it's not your fault. Or like, you'll be fine. And she's like, you're fucking evil. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Can I say fucking on your podcast? Of course, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I just, I, want, I, I never cleared that with you before. Oh, yeah. All I could think about with Jezebel, um, like, where did we get that Jezebel? Like, I, my worst aunt, the worst one. Um, and we all have them guys. Oh, like, yeah. We all have the worst family <laughs> member. And she, for one party, she was like, do you like this dip I made? It's the Jezebel. And it was cream cheese, yellow mustard, pineapple jelly, and horseradish. What the fuck? And it's all mixed together. And she's like, I can't get enough of it. And she's just like, it's the Jezebel dip. You want the recipe? I was like, Definitely not. That's crazy. It's disgusting. It's bright yellow. Oh my so, God. Um, oh. Yeah. So that's, that's what I thought of with that yeah. name. So I was like, Oh, I'm really glad that aunt Belle was able to tell us, um, why. Yeah. She was like a, named that. the b- biblical woman who slept with a bunch of people. Yeah, I don't really know the like Bible. She was an evil temptress yeah, yeah, yeah. or something. I don't know the Bible. The only thing I know Jezebel is the, the classic 10,000 maniac song Jezebel. Oh yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I know it from. Yep. But, uh, yeah. And so, so Aunt Belle calls her out, and that, that I guess that is when when Julie's like, "Oh fuck, I really I, I need to change," yeah, yeah, and yeah. that was the catalyst for the change. And then she sees what happens to press, and and, and Amy also asks on that staircase um, confrontation. She's just like, "Does he love you?" And she says, "Like you and I both know the answer to that. He loves his wife." Yeah, and why wouldn't he love his wife? Yeah, and it was the first time that she was actually honest mm-hmm. and a little bit generous. And in that scene, I noticed, like, technically, you see Amy uh, above Julie yep. for the first time in the movie. Um, so you see Betty Davis in, like, uh, in a powerless position. Yes. And you ever not ever really get to see her sort of meek and cowering like that. And mm-hmm. it's just that, that one scene. Because at the end, when she does decide to go off um, to the leper colony, it is shot i mean it's it's very dark and you know they're all sort of marching off to their death but it's it's shot in a little bit of a a triumphant way where she she at least is looking sort of she's on this this wagon full of these these sick men and she's sort of sitting up straight like like she's sort of um you know on a float at a parade or something yeah there are torches and it is just this like oh yeah, like there, it's it's like that scene in Monty Python where it's like, bring out your dead, <laughs> like you know, they're they're all there. Um, yeah, it is. It's a rough, rough scene. And you're like, part of well, I was just like, well, you, you, I don't know if Press is getting what he deserves, but Julie is getting what she deserves. She is, and she knows it, and she has this kind of resolute look on her face, yeah. and uh, and the torch is kind of lighting her face as as they're going through the streets, and she's sitting there like Florence Nightingale, just like sitting with him on her lap, and this is this is her destiny. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, this is. Um, I th- I really do think this movie is like a condemnation of yeah. the antebellum South in a way that. Gone with the Wind is not. Gone with the Wind is a room. And I, I, I do, part of me loves Gone with the Wind. I've, I've yeah. seen it so many times. Um, and I always, there will be a, a fond place in my heart for that movie. But that does romanticize this this brutal racist society in a way that I, I think that this movie um, doesn't. It doesn't. It's a little bit more, uh, a little bit more honest for its time. Yeah. Um, or a lot more honest for its time, but it doesn't make that the focal point as much as it makes kind of human sacrifice the focal point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the uh, politics are sort of in the background. I guess mm-hmm. just like coming to it from from our point of view and it especially in 2019, you can't help but read yes. sort of the, po- the political text of a film. Yeah, um, you look at it differently yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, like, and obviously I didn't have that context when I was watching it as a 10-year-old uh, or a 9-year-old yeah, whenever yeah. I watched it for the first time. But, like, now knowing what we know, you do see this and you compare it to other pieces and you realize that this is a little bit more of a prevalent piece and this is something that's a little bit more daring and she earned that Oscar. She yeah, absolutely. She really did. So I 
I think that it was better that she got this film that she didn't get the Vivian Lee role. And uh, hey, worked out for her. Yeah, I mean this this movie obviously is not as well known as Gone with the Wind, but uh, and I, I love Betty Davis and everything I see her, but I uh, yeah, it's hard. She, she can be a little you know a little much and a little mannered sometimes. Oh yeah. And in this movie, she's really not. It's it is one of the her greatest performances I think. Yeah, she takes the Betty Davis off of her. Yeah. Which is what's really interesting about it. She doesn't play. She doesn't have the the same cadence in what she says when she says it. Yeah. I thought for sure I'd be watching Julia Sugarbaker. Like a design, you know. For, yeah, she doesn't overdo the action. She doesn't do it. She's more Suzanne than she is Julia. She's just like you know spoiled and like very like subdued uh, when in, in her speech, but she's also very manipulative. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting role, and it kind of launched her after this. Yeah, I mean, this was, well, this was her last Oscar, which is interesting. Like, she she got, yeah. and she was nominated a bunch more times, but she never, she never won again. Mm-hmm. Um, this was great. Uh, we've gone on for a while, which is awesome, but let me quickly yes. read. This is so strange. So, if this is the first time you're listening to High Camp, um, this podcast is basically stolen from, or the name at least is stolen from these two film guides released in the 90s by a amateur film critic and professional librarian from um, Duluth, Minnesota named Paul Rowan. And so this is his very short review of Jezebel, which is interesting. He says, Jezebel is a survey of quaint customs in antebellum New Orleans. George Brent gets killed in a duel. Henry Fonda finds out the hard way that yellow fever is carried by mosquitoes. This is a great movie for Queens since the whole plot hinges on what color dress Betty Davis wears to a ball. The rest of the girls are in white, but she shows up in red. They treat her as if she was wearing one of those t-shirts that say, shit happens. Grim stuff, but entertaining and indubitably well-made. Davis won an Oscar for her role. This gay cult film presents a fairly brazen display of her classic mannerisms. I couldn't agree less with this review. I, I was just going to say, so we just did like an hour episode, right? Yeah, it's uh, like he stopped watching said the movie. The opposite. Yeah. yeah, we said everything there the opposite of what he wrote like it, it that no no it, it's crazy like usually this guy has like, i think he's a, a good writer and like he yeah. usually has some insights into movies and i don't know if he was just like oh i need to have every betty davis movie in here and i don't know what to he say about this a one. little betty davis heavy on that list but oh, yeah. um but for yeah it sounds like he really kind of didn't know what to say and he kind of uh trivialized the whole movie and made it really light it's not yeah it's weird it's it's so strange and uh i'm so glad that I saw this movie and didn't rely on Paul Rowan's review. Cause I, I am won't. glad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad that I brought this up and that you were able to try something new for the podcast. Absolutely. And yeah, this is, um, this is the first of many, I'm sure Betty Davis episodes. So yeah. it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, so before we go, I ask all of my guests, mm-hmm. if we were to write a third volume of high camp, um, with movies either not included in the first two books or released after 1994, um, what would be your nomination to include? Um, well, first, before I say that, are you writing volume three of High Camp? And well, I don't you... think I have the rights. I think the sure. I mean, maybe one day, maybe that will be my or my just make it lot in camp life. or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would add 1989's She Devil, starring Roseanne Barr and Meryl Streep and Ed Begley Jr. What an amazing selection! <laughs> and this is a movie I have never seen this movie, but when you talked earlier about just being in the video store um, and seeing, like I vividly remember that, that VHS case of Roseanne just like cackling behind Meryl Streep or something. And I don't know, was it rated, is it rated R maybe? I'm trying to think of why I never rented it. It was because there's, there's a little bit of, uh, there isn't nudity, but there's like a lot of, uh, a lot of swear words okay. and a lot of suggestive uh, suggestive behaviors, a lot of sex, and it's very campy to start. And it makes me sad that every, I mean, listen, it makes me sad that Roseanne went the way that Roseanne did. I mean, it, I, I, unfortunately, I think it was inevitable. Yeah, I mean, she was headed down that road anyway, but it was just kind of like, oh man, this is this is rough. And this is when somebody's canceled like that. It's really hard and you can't go back and really appreciate the show that they created. And this is one of those examples where I feel like I don't want to enjoy this movie, but I enjoy this movie because it was a different version of her to me, but it's not, she's still a monster. 
Yeah, and I mean that's literally like a whole other sub subject. Oh, can of worms. Yeah. I, I I'm of the mind that it's a different thing to continue to employ people uh, and celebrate people than it is to like to watch their past work. Sure. As long as you're, I mean, I don't know about like you, you know giving money to whoever or whatever, mm-hmm. but there there's certain yeah. I mean. Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, there's, they've made some fucking great movies. They have, I so. know. And Roseanne Barr yeah. in this movie, like, first of all, I think it's Meryl Streep's greatest wow. work. Like, she's out of her damn mind. That's bold. It's good. <laughs> it is a good film for that reason. And Roseanne plays a character who is just, like, this very empowered uh, feminist who'd been dragged her whole life and then decides to rise up. And it's so good. You root for her really hard. Wow. Yeah. So Meryl Streep is is the villain. She's the villain. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh I I mean what a strange I mean especially looking back on it from the vantage point of 2019 but like yeah. what a strange duo of actresses. Oh yeah. <laughs> and they don't really ever share the they don't share scene they share two scenes together. Oh interesting. And then it happens very separated. Everything happens huh. it happens separate. Um but yeah, it's a great movie. I'll have to check it out. Please do. Add it to the list. Cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. Thank this was you. a great, great discussion, and I'm so glad that uh, I got to watch Jezebel. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Um, would you? Do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, uh, so of course my podcast, a special presentation, um, and you can follow us. Uh, like I mentioned, that's about it. I have a live storytelling show in LA. If you're in LA called story tasting, where we drink wine and sample different stories that people are telling. Ooh. Um, and then I have other things that I'm working on in writing, but like nothing, nothing to talk about yet. So cool. Uh, if you like this podcast, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at High Camp Pod. You can always follow me uh, on Twitter and Instagram at RuckerBry. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Write a review. Tell your friends. Thank you guys so much for listening to High Camp. Um, and thank you again, Jonathan. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.